Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, this morning, I pray that we would have a glimpse of your Son. I pray that we would see him, and I pray that we would love him. Amen. Y'all may know this. The third Sunday of Advent is called Gaudete Sunday, which is a weird word because it's not English. It's why we have a pink candle on the third Sunday of Advent. It's the Sunday of rejoicing in the midst of a semi-penitential season. And Gaudete is just the Latin command, rejoice. We could call it in English, rejoice Sunday, given that that's our language. That word, rejoice, actually comes from Philippians 4, because it was traditional for hundreds of years to open the third Sunday of Advent with Philippians 4, 4 through 6. We actually, as traditional as Anglicans are, are not being very traditional in that we don't open with the declaration, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say to you, rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's how this Sunday was opened for hundreds of years. Rejoice in the Lord always. Rejoice in gentleness. Rejoice in forbearance. Rejoice in patient hope. It's interesting to me that Paul's call to the Philippian church to rejoice comes in the midst of their own anxiety. Think about what he says. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say to you, rejoice. Do not be anxious about anything. There was something troubling them and stirring them to anxiety. And in the very midst of that anxiety, he called them to rejoice. We all know that there are many things that actually disturb our spirits and make it very difficult to rejoice in the Lord. There are many things that make it very difficult to believe what Paul says when he says, the Lord is near. There are lots of things that upset the little ship of our soul and make it very difficult to actually have that spirit of joy and gentleness, forbearance. It's actually interesting to me that in Philippians 4, we know what the anxiety was about. Because right before he called them to rejoice, he actually named three people in the church. He said, I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. And I encourage you, Clement, to help these women who've shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel to live at peace. There was a fight in the church. There was two people who were arguing with each other. And that argument was such that there was anxiety throughout the entire congregation. And Paul names a third party and says, help them live at peace. The anxiety was actually a quarrel. And in the midst of that anxiety, in the midst of that turbulence, Paul said to them, rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everybody, your patience, your forbearance. There are so many things that shatter the peace of our souls. It's not just a quarrel in the church. You think about the list of things that can derail us, that can upset the ship of the soul. 
You think about the fact that the soul at its best is like this deep, smooth lake. But more often than not, it's like a tempestuous sea because storm winds are blowing over it and through it. Whether you're talking about poor health or broken friendships, whether you're talking about lost dreams, whether you're talking about our own sin, the storms that upset the waters of the lake are so frequent. And the question is, how in the world, in the midst of one of those moments, could we actually rejoice in gentleness? Could we rejoice in patient endurance? I mention this not just because it is the third Sunday of Advent, and it is kind of the theme of the third Sunday of Advent. It is that. But I mention that because this idea How do you rejoice in the midst of a storm of the soul is what lies behind John 3. And it's John 3 that I want to look at today. In John 3, we see this picture of John the Baptist rejoicing, of John the Baptist full of gentle and joyful endurance. And yet, it's not in a good season. It's actually when life is going awry. It's when life is complicated. The particular storm that's facing John the Baptist is an interesting storm. It's the storm of envy. Look at verses 25 and 26 of this reading. In verses 25 and 26 of John 3, we read, Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. By the way, whenever John the writer uses the word Jew, he means very specifically Judean one of the Jews who came from the area around Jerusalem. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. The storm that was facing John the Baptist was envy. All are leaving you and going to him. John, you're being forgotten. They're all flocking to Jesus instead of you. Lest you think that temptation was minor. You know, John's a hero of the faith. It wouldn't have fazed him. Lest you think that temptation was minor, consider the fact that his whole life had been devoted for one purpose. Preaching. Preaching to pave the way. Preaching repentance to bring people back to God. His whole life was devoted to that a Nazarite from birth, given to God since birth, no marriage, no pleasures of the flesh, nothing, his whole life in training for one mission, to preach and proclaim the way of God. He was like an Olympic athlete who sets aside everything that the rest of us enjoy for one purpose, to speak to these people about God. And they're walking away. They're leaving him. Lest you think that that temptation to envy would have been easy to overcome, put it in your own context. Put it in our world. Imagine a teacher who devotes himself or herself to the craft of teaching, spends time for the students struggling on their behalf, and imagine them overhearing the students in the hallway saying, I don't like their class. I want to be with somebody else. Imagine a doctor who sweats day and night to be as good as he or she can be, and watching patients flock to the other people at the practice and avoiding them. We all know the feeling of being overlooked and passed over. 
We all know the feeling of people preferring others to us. In fact, you might say that there is no greater wound than when a deep friend or family member prefers somebody else's company over our own. The favoritism of a parent to the unfavored one may be the deepest cut that could occur. To be passed over is something that we all know by experience. And we all know the temptation that arises, the storm of the soul where anxiety and anger and grief and bitterness and ultimately envy begin to grow. Can you imagine in that moment of being passed over and forgotten, rejoicing in gentleness? John is a picture of that. And this is what I want to see today. This call to rejoice in the midst of the storm, the particular storm of envy. Most of us probably don't have a lot of raw envy in our life. The cartoonish depiction of the green with envy consuming every facet of the life, eating us from the inside out, that's pretty rare. Most of us don't know the feeling of envy consuming every core of our being. But we all have the seeds of it. We all have the little shoots of that in us. If full-blown envy is like kudzu, overwhelming the soul and stifling all other life, most of us have a few shoots planted here and there. The seed of envy, those little shoots, those little bits that we have planted in us, even if the full-blown thing is not there consuming us, the seed or the little shoots is very simply discontent. Discontent. Unchecked, unhindered discontent grows into that full-blown envy. But it looks so harmless when it's little, so innocuous. We all know discontent. We all know the discontent that comes from the fact that life has not turned out the way that we want. We all know the discontent that comes from the fact that others have been treated better. We all know the discontent that comes from the fact that it just doesn't feel fair. And the things that I've longed for in my dreams haven't actually come true. We all know that discontent as we look at our lives and we say, this is actually not the way that I hoped that it would turn out. We all know the discontent of looking at ourselves when we've been wounded saying, this isn't actually what I deserve. We know the bitterness and ultimately the envy that can grow from those seeds. Those things may not look like the full-blown kudzu of the green with envy consuming every portion of your life, but they are its breeding ground. And one way of looking at it, envy or covetousness is actually the primal sin. You can look at what happened in the garden and you can label it failure to worship God, breaking of the first commandment. You can label it pride. But one of the other ways that it's traditionally been labeled by the church is envy or covetousness. And that way of looking at it makes a lot of sense. That at the root of all sin is envy or covetousness. And that what springs out of that is theft and murder 
and adultery and falsehood. Adam and Eve, in other words, were envious of God. They coveted what they had not been given, and so they stole it. In this way of looking at it, it makes sense that covetousness is the final commandment because it sums up the rest. It's at the heart of all the rest. I want something that I've not been given, and I'm willing to do whatever it takes to get it. That way of understanding the seriousness of envy or covetousness is actually quite helpful because it reveals its power, that it's not this innocuous little thing, that it's actually the seed like kudzu. Don't get let a little bit get in your yard. Beware if it does. Get it out when it's small. It reveals to us the power and the overwhelming force of envy or covetousness. But it's important for us to see that even behind envy is that simple discontent. It is not innocuous. This, by the way, the fact that discontent breeds covetousness or envy, which breeds all the rest of the sin, is why Paul can say things like the love of money is the root of all evil. That statement makes no sense unless we understand that that unchecked desire for what I've not been given can breed anything. It's why he can say that greed is the equivalent of idolatry. That statement doesn't make a lot of sense unless we realize the power of those unchecked discontents that breeds greeds or envy. There's a lot of things that sort of pop into place when we realize the significance of this sort of discontentment, this sort of envy. This, this is what John the Baptist is being tempted by. His disciples coming up to him, and you know that they are discontent. You know that they are envious, and they say, Rabbi, you, you were good. You gave that man a recommendation. You, you spoke highly of him, and now he's swiping your disciples. People are leaving. And it's not just random people either. It's part of the core crowd. Andrew's gone. John is gone. Core disciples are leaving you. And they're going to that other person. The discontent, the envy is in them. And it's what John is being tempted by. But John rebukes them. I will not let that seed be planted in my heart. He rebukes them. That doesn't get planted in my soul any more than I would put poison ivy in my garden. I will not let that be planted. He looks at them and he says, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. He looks at them and he says, what I was given, I was given by God. I didn't deserve even the bit that I got. And to be discontent with what I was given is to be discontent with God is to rebuke him for his choices. Can you imagine that response to the places of discontent in our life? I feel discontent. No, what I have been given is what God chose to give me. He chose not to give me that. And to actually be bitter or angry or envious over the thing that I was not given is to actually be bitter and angry at God. That's what John's response means. You can't have anything unless God gives it to you. And if you're stewing because God didn't give you what you want, 
Your stewing is not with your situation or your neighbor. Your stewing is with God himself. And John said, I'm not going down that road. I was given more than I deserve. And I'm not going to shake my fist at God for what I was not given. Can you imagine being able to look at your places of discontent with that perspective? That, to me, seems like a stunning leap of faith to be able to say, this life, it was God's gift. And I don't need to be angry over what it isn't because I have more than I should have been given to begin with. A stunning leap of faith. John isn't saying that we can't pray for what we don't have, by the way. We can't. I mean, even in that Philippians 4 passage, when Paul says, be anxious for nothing, he turns right around and says, but in everything by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. This isn't a statement of don't pray, just resign yourself to this is as good as it gets. But there is a call that even in the midst of our prayer, our spirit, our attitude would be one of deep contentment and peace with what God's chosen to give us. There is a call that in the midst of our prayer, our prayer would be marked by thankfulness over what we've received, not bitterness over what we haven't. Again, it's not a statement to resign yourself to this is just what it's going to be. Life is miserable. It's a statement to peace with God. That's why in that Philippians 4, Paul puts gentleness at the very heart of it. This forbearance, this willingness to be where God has placed me, even as I wait something else. Prayer is still permissible, even commanded in that moment. But it's prayer that actually recognizes that where I am right now is by God's grace. And as I long for more, I'm longing for more in gratitude and not in bitterness and envy. But John the Baptist doesn't just express contentment. That's actually what makes this passage even the more stunning. If he had stopped there and said, look, what I've been given, I've been given by heaven, and I'm content with that, you'd be like, that's a step of faith I've not yet learned to make. He takes a step beyond that that's unbelievable. Look at the very end of verse 29. He says, therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He's not just content. He rejoices. The disciples are saying, John, everyone's leaving you. Nobody cares about your words anymore. Your message is overlooked. And he says, I rejoice. I'm so thankful. I'm overjoyed. He takes a step of rejoicing, gaudete, a step of rejoicing beyond the contentment. That, to me, is a leap of faith that is beyond what I can imagine. To be content with what we've been given is one thing. To rejoice in it, how much more? That rejoicing, by the way, even that contentment, is not something we can do just by trying harder. I don't know if you've gone down that road, rejoice always, the shortest verse in the Bible. I'm supposed to rejoice in the Lord. 
And so you will yourself to rejoice. And at the end of it, how much more joy is there than when you began? Not much. We can't try harder to rejoice. We can't try harder and make our hearts content. In fact, if you sort of stuff down the discontent and the bitterness and do your best to fight against it like it's an enemy on the field of battle with a sword, and you discover on the other side of it, you've basically let it grow stronger in the struggle. We don't win that war by trying harder at rejoicing, by trying harder at contentment. The only way that we actually get there The only way that we get to this contentment that John expresses, this joy that's even beyond that, the only way that we get there is by actually seeing Jesus. This is at the core of this passage. And this is why this passage is suitable for Advent. It's nice that it has the word joy in it, and this is the Rejoice Sunday. But Advent is about learning to see Jesus And this passage is an Advent passage because at the core of it, the step of contentment and the further step of joy only comes about, only occurs when we actually learn to see Jesus. At the heart of John's answer is his understanding of how big Jesus is. Look at verse 28. He says, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I'm not the Christ. I'm not him. I've just been sent before him. I'm not Jesus, he says. He says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. He's somebody different than me. He's the bridegroom. I'm just a groomsman. He sees Jesus, and that seeing Jesus enables him to be at peace with where he is. That seeing Jesus enables him to even rejoice where he is. All of this, his ability to rejoice as people walk away, his contentment, all of it flows from the fact that he sees Jesus clearly. We confess the right things about Jesus. We confess the right things. We confess that he is Savior, that he's Lord, that he's the light of the world, that in him is the life of God. We confess the right things about Jesus, but it actually takes a lifetime to begin to see that he is actually all that we need. It takes a lifetime to learn to see with the eyes of our heart what we confess with our mouths. It takes a lifetime to learn to see that he is actually quite literally enough. That if we have him, we have everything. That there is nothing else to be desired if we have him. We confess that Jesus is enough, but then we turn around and live as if he's not. We live as if we need a thousand other things to be at peace, a thousand other things to have joy, a thousand other things to be satisfied. We confess the right things with our mouth, but our hearts have not yet caught up to this reality. John's heart had caught up. He saw Jesus. He looked at him and he saw God himself in the flesh. When he said bridegroom, he's drawing on Old Testament prophetic language. And always in the Old Testament, when it talks about God is the groom, it's Yahweh who's the groom. He is the husband to his people. And when he points at Jesus and calls him a bridegroom, John is saying, I see God in the flesh. 
he was blown away by what he was allowed to see. He saw him and he saw his love. Why else would he name him bridegroom, a man on the hunt for his wife? He saw passion and zeal and the fire of love in his eyes. He saw in Jesus, God himself coming on mission to find a bride that he would join to himself for all eternity. And John was stunned by what he saw. He saw in this humble man the culmination of all of world history. Adam and Eve divorced from God in the fall. And the rest of human history lived in the state of divorce. And then God comes to win his bride back for himself. And John saw that and was blown away. He saw Jesus. He looked at him and he saw somebody who could bring what we cannot do for himself to us. He said earlier of him that he is the Lamb of God, the one who actually takes away sins, all the things that we can't do, try as we might struggle over and over to conquer a sin, and he can actually do it. He saw the one coming with the Holy Spirit and fire purifying and enlivening his people, filling them with strength, life that they couldn't produce for themselves. He saw all of these things in Jesus. He must have been stunned that he was even allowed to get close to participate. He looked at him and said, I've been given all I need by heaven. To be close to him is more than enough. I don't need to try to take his place. I don't need to be envious of him. He saw Jesus, and in that, he was able to rejoice. He saw Jesus, and in that, he was content. Much of our discontent, and therefore the seeds of our envy, the seeds of our envy and the sin that it produces, comes very simply from the fact that even though we confess the right things, our hearts have not caught up. We don't see Jesus clearly. We look at him like he's an abstract principle, He's a theory, he's a concept, and we don't catch up to the fact that he is the living God, fierce in his anger and love, calling people to obedience and holiness, forgiving sin. Part of our issue is very simply the fact that we can't see him physically. The call for us is to actually learn to see him with the eyes of the heart, to approach him in awe and wonder. We can't will ourselves to contentment. We can't will ourselves to rejoicing. But I promise you that if you see Jesus, contentment and rejoicing will follow. If you see Jesus, you will realize that you have all that you need. And so this call to rejoice on this Sunday is really a call to see Jesus. And my prayer for us in this season is that the eyes of our heart would be opened, that we would see the Lord for who he is. Amen.